Welcome everyone to the Critical Distance Podcast. I am the senior curator, Chris Wigman, and with me here today are three profoundly talented writers in honor of Black History Month here at Critical Distance. Joining me are uh, Maddie Bryce, critic and scholar. Yay, hi. Zalani Stewart, also a very, very talented writer, joining us from the wintry wastelands of Canada. Oh, it's very cold here. It's very cold. <laughs> And Evan Narciss, who you would recognize as being a regular writer for Kotaku. Um, hey, everybody. And my role in this is mainly just to introduce and then step right out of the way, because I am the whitest white person in the world. <laughs> so I know that Maddie has a very loose sort of itinerary that she's set up for us, and so I'm just going to take a step back and let you three fantastically talented folks take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. So I kind of wanted to maybe start with the more general and maybe largest question is Black History Month, yay or nay? And we don't have to kind of go too into the politics, but I'm kind of interested in maybe what is our general uh, feeling between the three of us of like what what Black History Month does for us. Um, a, A while back, I was a freelance writer. Um, and I haven't always written about video games. I've written about culture and politics and books and movies, comics, a bunch of other stuff. I wrote an essay for a now defunct magazine that was called Why I Hate Black History Month. And the main reason was I, I hate that we repeatedly get this same hagiography of like great men and women um, that seems frozen in time, right? It seems mm-hmm. two-dimensional at best. Um, we don't get a sense of who they were in their more fallible moments, you know. And mm-hmm. you know, you can trot off the list. We'll get something about Ma- um, Martin Luther King on on the uh, second week of January. Well, that that'll go for like a week or so. Then there's a breather. Then there's a Super Bowl, and then you might get something about a black quarterback. And then you get you know a, a very predictable list of feats and accomplishments and George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington, and and I, I'm fine with hearing about these people over and over again, but what seems to be lacking from the continued kind of execution of this idea is a sense that these people didn't always agree, didn't always have the same goals, you know, didn't think about, you know, how to fight oppression and hegemony and disenfranchisement in the same way. It, it feels like a little bit cartoonish sometimes in a way for, like, you know, big companies, big entities that pat themselves on the back uh, once a year um, when the other 11 months of the year they, they do things that are anti-black. So I was growing on there. So, I, I mean, um, so when, when Evan talks about um, what is essentially sort of this homogenizing um, of this nature of these kinds of who are actually normally black radicals, this sort of um, goes into what Black History Month actually is. Um, black History Month is made for white people. It's not made for black people. It's not uh, portrayed to black people um, to help them um, with what is normally um, a large um, breaking of identity and a very sort of weird mush that happens when uh, you're cast as someone who's inferior for a very, very long time. This is something I think, this is something I think is kind of important. Um, a lot of these people, 
you know, these, these sort of people look at uh, their images get thrown a lot, a lot. Um, they're usually de-radicalized. Their messages are usually skewed. They're skewed towards a very, very uh, particular line that helps people with their image. It all feels like an image. And, and, the, and the problem with Black History Month also, which is something that makes me kind of weird about it, is that in the way that it exists for right people in the sense that it exists for an image and it makes people feel good, but at the same time it doesn't actually make real structural change. Um, there's meaningful change for policy. There's meaningful change for people, uh, black people who are usually denied access, uh, usually denied access to institutions, which can allow them uh, mobility. This is, you know, usually what we want. Like we want the, you know, the ability to go to school, uh, get some kind of work, so we get the resources to feed ourselves and be happy and survive and such. And this is things that, that black people, uh, especially in the United States, but even um, in Canada to an extent, are also denied to certain respects. And these aren't things that get talked about. These aren't things that go into conversation. These, I think, the kinds of images that get reproduced a lot. And the messages that get reproduced in this sort of de-radicalized faction um, don't necessarily do much of anything. And, uh, and that way, I mean, to be honest, sometimes it can even, can even feel somewhat dangerous, too, to not reprioritize the message and reprioritize um, what is important within black history and what's important in itself towards moving towards a society in which blacks are capable of creating good lives for themselves. Though that's erased. And in that thing, I'm, I'm really nervous about my history. It just, it just makes me feel weird, a little uncomfortable. Uh, Maddie, if I can jump in to, I mean, further complicate things. Yeah. I, I've seen just recently some studies that that show internet searches for black history topics do spike during February. That's probably not a big surprise. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we can treat, like, Google autocomplete, like the palm reading of the internet, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, of, of a hive mind. I mean, right. there is something to there is something to that, right? Like, there is a good that can be drawn from that. Like if people are, are seeking out these things because of a random thing they read or heard, and that starts them off finding out what is meaningful about the, the black experience as it's been lived, you know, for 500 something years, that is good, you know, and if it takes a banner um, and a month and a slogan to do that, I think that, that is better than nothing. But, you know, Zolotis' point still stands, and I think something that probably bothers he and I, and maybe even you, is that this the easy narratives that kind of spool out of that. What, what, what I think is, is that I really like positive images. I think positive images are actually really important. Um, it's important to, to show particularly that these people struggled. It's very important because I, I think what's important to be taught, this isn't something I say, also this is something that uh, Hillary Beard and Joe Bester say in Huffington Post as well, which is that uh, it's important to show these people struggled to show that, that, that struggle and determination in itself can allow some kind of way to be able to feel good about yourself, right? It's, it's, it's important that Black History is a way towards when Black History Month is directed towards black people in a sense that it, it's a means towards helping black people with their own confidence, with their own sense of self. And, and that in itself, I think, uh, means shifting this narrative towards this understanding of struggle, of the things that these people went through to get where they are, that a lot of these people who have been successful didn't just get successful because, you know, they, they didn't just sort of rise from a university and suddenly become the first PhD or something. There was a lot, um, a lot of structural and social barriers that they went through, um, which even shows that their feet are even higher than we think they are. And to show this, that, that, that these are positive images, but in spite of the stuff that they go through, that's what I think is really important because it shows that mean me too and someone else too and other you know and other black people um, around North America and around the world I guess in the same way that even the stuff that we go through and even the things that we deal with um, despite of that we can still do something with ourselves we can still be happy achieve something that we're proud of so yeah that's it. 
Yeah, and so I'm definitely on the same wavelength as the both of you. And to take kind of Evan's point as well, something I, I kind of wish Black History Month did was maybe show our watermark, like where have things changed and where do things still need to change? Because in a sense, like, I think that having this dedicated month is kind of like having um, like a writing prompt. You know, like you don't really think about writing about something and or writing in a certain way until like someone challenges you or maybe it comes up to you naturally. But since we know that culture isn't thinking about racism naturally, then we kind of have to set that like kind of set a month, unfortunately, to say, hey, time to think about it. So I think that is an interesting aspect about how do we take the idea of, well, why isn't every month Black History Month, if you will, and using that for kind of contrast and not keep it the same, like, nice narrative that makes certain people feel okay about the past and instead show kind of like where, how far we've gone and where we still need to go. And so not to you know, to, to now wrap this into maybe the main part of our conversation is, now what exactly does this mean for games? Video um, games. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not even just video games, thankfully. But, like, I, I'm thinking, like, I don't think we've really had Black History Month in our publications, right? Like, I don't think our news has shifted or culture rating has really shifted to include more issues about blackness or anything else. So... What exactly, you know, does this mean right now to be having a Black History Month and being a games writer? You know, I'm pretty lucky in that Kotaku affords me um, not just an audience, but a, a really wide swath of freedom to write about this kind of stuff whenever I want. So I don't have to necessarily write about it just in February. I can write about it when I move to, and, and to be perfectly frank, uh, this February I, I felt like, I don't have anything, I don't have a big statement to make mm-hmm. uh, that, that might change in the week we have left, but <laughs> I, I don't have, you know, I don't, I, I haven't felt like the urge to, I won't say the urge, because the urge is always there, but I, I haven't had like a, a nice, neat peg to hang any kind of statement on right now. I mean, I've written about, you know, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, I wrote about that when that came out, and, and I wrote about it a little bit more when they announced it was going to be a standalone game, but to your point, like, I think there is a kind of programming w- with readers sometimes where they expect to hear about it in only in February, right? Like, and that's unfortunate, you know? That is the downside of having a programmatically determined time when we can talk about the black experience as it's lived and as it's played. I mean, part of the other problem is that, and, and, and this is something I'm, I'm pretty sure we all unanimously agree on, is there's just a dearth of subject matter of the representation of creativity that is focused around trying to deliver what it might feel like to be a black person in a fictional mm-hmm. setting, in a real setting, like as with other entertainment industries and ecosystems, video games are about as bad, maybe even worse than, than some of the other major media types. So it feel it, if it can feel like when you're bringing it up, you're forcing people to read about stuff that they don't want to read about because it's it's just not a, a topic of conversation from uh, the creative standpoint either. You know, like my, my my girlfriend who's who's Korean, she watches or she watched the first season of Scandal, right? And 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 <laughs> even 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 in that show, as mainstream as it is, there you get a sense of how power dynamics 
get lived a little bit differently when you're a black person and a non-black person. Video games just doesn't have anything that definitely handles that kind of messaging uh and it, and that's a, I think a big source of frustration. So like when you want to bring this, when you want to talk about this stuff, there's so little to hang your hat on um, from a creative standpoint. If if we're people who are writing about video games, that it, it I think we're still stuck on this square one, which is let's get more of this stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. square two would be okay, we have a critical mass and we can start talking about what works and what doesn't. I feel like we're we're still trying to build to a critical mass. So there's a lot of things. So, so one thing it says is I do agree that there is a drought, of not only in black people represented within video games, but it comes to black writers, uh, black people in game development. Um, I, I think I think talking about the video games industry in itself necessitates talking a little, going a little bigger into the technology industry, sort of the American technology industry. Yeah. Um, and video games, uh, video games journalism tends to uh, have a lot of trouble making uh, strict, um, very precise criticisms of capitalist processes and industry processes. Um, this sort of hinders its ability people to go further when it comes to why, what's it called, why sort of representations don't really happen. Video games also, uh, at least big video games, tend to lack nuance. And, you should, and this actually sort of goes into more of the structure, the way video games are made, the way they actually play. Just the video games themselves tend to sort of uh, prevent them from being able to actually discuss nuanced topics. Um, so so it, it, becomes, it becomes something a little more than just representation. It becomes more than just a number game of, of you know, how many black people are on the screen. Well, I see three black people. That's okay. It becomes the idea of, of how these games work structurally that actually prevent them from being able to discuss these in, in, in meaningful ways. And how, it does, and how does the way that we talk about games sort of limit us from being able to make, uh, you know, real critical analysis when it comes to the representation of black people in the games and, and the industry itself around it, you know, the, the labor around these games, you know, who gets hired within these places, and the sort of discussion spheres, who gets hired within games writing, who gets hired when it comes to conferences, who gets, you know, flown to conferences and talk there. So, so there is a large, large sphere around that. Um, I, I should also like to note also is that when, when Evan talks about this idea that, okay, you know, Black History Month is here, now I have to talk about Black History Month, sort of, you know, makes me sort of feel like Black History Month exists so that it doesn't have to be anywhere else, right? To, to sort of shove Black History Month in there, sort of to almost like diversity lounge it, to diversity okay. lounge black conversations yeah. into the corner. Yeah. It's like, okay, now you have your chance, but only over here, you know what I mean? So in a sense, like, right. you know, that there's a lot of, it's, it's really uncomfortable. It's a lot of weirdness. And also, I also feel uncomfortable sometimes um, around this need that, that because I am a black person now, I need to make the statement. I need yeah. to come out, I need to say the black <laughs> thing, you know what I mean? That's, that's also <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think there are a lot of, lot of reasons for that that, go, that are way, way bigger than games. But at the same time, you know, they can be sort of discussed maybe through games, and they can, you know, get some good conclusions off of it that can, you know, make some, you know, make, make some critical change in terms of how we look yeah. at things and, you know, make some structural change maybe too. Yeah, so you hit upon a couple of things, and in particular, it's kind of also the idea, like, you know, a lot of racial justice that was going on in the 20th century was also for economic justice and for other sort of social justice, not just, you know, for blackness, right? And so there's also the idea that there's like this, that Black History Month is kind of only about blackness and maybe not like where blackness sits in an intersection of a whole bunch of other of other things. Like for in particular, you know, even in this chat, like our kinds of blackness is probably very different. For yeah. for when I'm yeah. you know, I am multiracial, I am also uh, Caribbean. Like Evan being from Haiti, my parents are from Jamaica. So it's kind of interesting the different relationships that we all have and 
the idea of diaspora is actually not really talked about as much and kind of what that means and what that means as exploring blackness. And so that's kind of what's interesting for me about trying to explode what because as we were saying, like we have like this neat package of blackness that here's Black History Month, here's what it is that we need to go with, but we're not talking about like what is the relationship between Caribbean and African Americans? What is the lineage between all all like black people overall on the globe to American blacks and a whole bunch of other, all these other things? And kind of what you're saying, Zelani, is that like very often when it comes to these sort of topics, I feel like people come to me and they're like, Maddie, so as a black games person, <laughs> what do you have to say about blackness? And it's just really, really uh, weird because I'm like, is that my, <laughs> you know, like, is that like ready for that? So I think yeah, I mean, it was really, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Maddie. Speaking about the Caribbean thing, like, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I was raised by a single mom. And she didn't always get down with black Americans, as she should say, no. African-Americans. So, like, uh, when you're an immigrant to this country, it's very easy to buy into the stereotypes that are being mm-hmm. uh, pumped into your head, like, 24-7 about the, the yeah. black people who are here, that they're lazy or they're this and that. Yeah. And it, so as somebody who's born here, that <laughs> really screwed up my head. I was like, Mom, come on. But <laughs> yeah. you, 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 where, where are you getting this from? And And... You know, talking about res- that fuels response too, right? Like I, I wrote a very personal essay about uh, the Assassin's Creed DLC. It was set in Haiti. Like I, I've got no immunity to the kind of personal touchstones that simple fact set off in me, right? Like I was mm-hmm. clearly going to have a response to that stuff, but you could have had a different response. Zolana could have had a diff- different response. Other people, you know, could have had different responses too. For me, it wasn't one of being curious because I knew some of the history it was touching on, it was more of a, a, a feeling of, of resonating with me, whereas you may have something different. So that there is a, a, this kind of variation, this gradation of the experience that, like you said, doesn't get talked about. I've always been slightly weird. I mean, to be honest, like I don't talk about my own blackness often or you know much at all because it's uncomfortable. I feel like I complicate narratives that, that tend to kind of come out and it makes me feel weird and kind of outside. I'm like, oh, I'm not really like oh, those other people. Maybe this is kind of odd. I mean, what's it called? My parents are my parents are from Trinidad and Dominica, and I am straight up diaspora. Um, I was born in Montreal. I've born and lived here my whole life. Uh, I was born in a very very middle class like just general middle class suburban like you you walk down the street and everyone's like mowing their lawns kind of thing and that's mostly around that means that I actually grew up mostly around white people for the most part and that means that you get you get called white a lot in school it's really weird you know mm-hmm. like so i mean it, it gets kind of it gets awkward um, you're, you ain't alone. Of, you're in alone you're in alone well you know what it, it's it's actually it's actually really nice to hear that and and the thing too is that you know and, and when you go through that a lot you know um you sort of sit there and you think well, well what is like am i not am i not authentic in a sense and you start, and it starts to get muddled of, of of what blackness really implies and I guess I mean like there are sometimes where I'll, I'll sit there and I'll make a tweet, for example, and I'll say, you know, you know, sometimes I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm fitting this narrative of, of blackness in a sense, and it makes you feel kind of weird, and then you get other people like just just like like someone slipping through the floorboard saying, hey, I kind of feel that way too, and it's like, oh shit, like this is just me around here, like that's that's kind of nice, you know, it's kind of nice to, to talk yeah. about alterity in that sort of sense instead of identity, and and doing that too is nice because it makes you feel a little more comfortable. Yeah, I think it also you know defeats the box that people are expecting you to be in. 
from top down as well, you know, in like, I guess it's just quite ironic that maybe all three of us might have a very similar experience in that way, since it seems like we all have Caribbean parents and we're, are we, are, is everyone first gen American or uh, a Canadian too here? I'm not sure what, what first gen implies, but I was born here. So same born same here. Way. Were your parents born outside of the country? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, and that's just an interesting experience to me too. The idea that like, you know, having immigrant parents while you are a nationally, you know, nationalized citizen and the different cultures that clash. And that's just a really interesting thing for me, which might derail us. I won't go into it, but I do think that like, you know, the idea of like diaspora and blackness are like, like kind of what my next note is, is kind of like, you know, when it comes up to like games and writing about games, like must it always be about slavery? You know, yeah. like kind of like the idea of slavery or on the way polar of that, like, like games, you know, being in a gang or doing whatever without nuance because there's nuance to, you know, people who are in gangs. Isn't there more to blackness than these two things? Yeah. Well, I want to, well, I want to, well. sorry, Zalam, I'm going to jump in because I want to talk, touch on the diaspora thing and something else that doesn't get talked about is that. That cuts both ways. I've been to Haiti like three times in my life. And the last time I went, well, I was a teenager, and my Creole is not great. Creole is the dialect that started off orally as being committed to like a written language now. It's not good. You can tell I'm not uh, you know, native to Haiti. And what I got called when I went there was blanc. It's a French word for white. You do essentially mm-hmm. calling me like uh. a white kid, like I was not like an authentication. And let me tell you something, that hurts yeah. because on one side you, you you're trying to rep for the place that you, where your parents were born, where you feel like really strong emotional psychological attachments to. But when you get there, like because your circumstances are different, somebody decides that you don't belong, you don't belong, or you don't fit what their template of what a Haitian teenager is supposed to be. It's a weird thing. It's, and, and, you know, I think one of the points that we'll eventually wind up making is that this is a rich, rich soil to build gameplay and commentary and whatever the hell else you want, you, you want to pull from it. It's, it's there to be had, but we need to have conversations that, that go beyond the kind of the easy tropes that we're all uh, uh, seeing all the time. And, and to your point, Maddie, about these polls that we're constantly getting pulled towards with regard to portrayal, whether it's slavery or urban gang kind of uh, myths. I mean, they mm-hmm. exist. They're not myths, but they're, they're way disproportionate and over, overrepresented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's weird because Ubisoft has done two entries um, in Assassin's Creed with black lead characters, and they've both been the slavery era, slavery era, right? On one hand, Assassin's Creed is historical period piece fiction, adventure fiction, so you, there's a lot of grist for the mill there. Ironically, when they had a, a half-white, half-Native American character, slavery was barely touched on. They had to go, through, go there through a black person, mm-hmm. through two black people. It would have been, been more interesting to me to, uh, to, to have it be the opposite, you know? I mean, on one hand, I, feel, I still feel like there's so much about slavery and the lived existence of black people during that era that we still don't know about, um, that there's uh, great sources for narrative drive and tension and, and, and psychological insight that other media haven't touched, much less games. But on the other hand, like, and I talked about this earlier today with somebody from Giant Bomb, from Patrick Klepek, 
the thing about slavery is that you've had to be so serious and reverent and uh, <laughs> tiptoe around some of the inhumanity that was exhibited at that time. You've, you've got to frame it just right so everybody doesn't get mm-hmm. upset, especially when you're trying to make a commercial product, right? But at the same time, like, people had to get by somehow, right? They had to laugh. They had to dance. They had to sing. They had to find optimism and hope somewhere during those times. And that's something we almost never see in, in pop culture portrayals of, of that time period. I think there's a particular reason why why slavery is shown the way it is and why it's usually just slavery, right? Um, this in itself ties to the way black history is in itself taught in general, right? In a way, again, like I noted this earlier, that, that when you discuss the nature of achievement without struggle, or when you discuss tr- struggle without achievement, um, there's a weird gap that comes on. So so I feel like when, when there are a lot of kids who are in school and they're being taught black history, a lot of black children, and because it's not necessarily directed towards them, they're made to feel like the big losers of history. I'm quoting that from someone else. But this understanding that, you know, Know, that, that my own history is just one of suffering and despair and exploitation, and that's me. That That's my identity. I'm going around <laughs> going, well, if I guess this is me. You know, like, it's really odd. But again, the reason why it's casted there to, to shift, like, like I'd like to be able to shift away from slavery a little bit, not necessarily because I don't think slavery is important, but because it's, it's shifting from this understanding of just struggle and never achievement, but at the same time, moving, you, you can either... I guess I guess my thing is is that I want to be able to see black people who are human in a sense, um, not just black people being exploited, and and the image and black people becoming the symbol of exploitation, um, but rather um, black people um, achieving things that they want, being happy, being kind of sad, dealing with complications about their identity, about their achievement goals, about uh, their self-esteem, which is something that's really talked about a lot. Um, yeah. and, and these are things too that and these are shown in slavery as well, right? Slavery slaves are constantly shown being beaten, being uh, exploited, but slaves are really shown making jokes. The slaves made jokes too, you know. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, they, they, they also they also burned down masters' houses to try to escape. You know what I mean? So so the, the constant sort of one-sided uh, narrative that gets pushed when it comes to uh, the black experience, which is that it's either blind achievement or it's either horrible suffering, and, and you know, but not never being able to show the two because they complement each other and they sort of uh, contradict each other in, in really important ways that that are able to show uh, the full nature of the black experience. So in a sense. I think it's kind of important. I think it's what implies when, when we talk about slavery, right? It's not, it's not to say that slavery, there's something wrong with it about going over there. It's that when we discuss slavery, we discuss it through the lens of, of blackness as suffering, of blackness as being the losers of history, which is not true. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to think that, like, that is what people almost feel safe representing in a weird way. Like, it's yeah. like slavery being the safest thing, even though it's the most dangerous thing at the same time. But, like, it's also because of how diversity is kind of being wielded in mainstream discourse, which is, you know, like, we need to have black people or other people in, and, well, I may be you know, a white developer and well, my only, you know, interaction with, you know, black culture is slavery. So that's like the only thing I can think of. And it's kind of, and and I kind of want to, you know, move this too much because, you know, uh, away from representation, because also I want to think about like the literal like design and craft like what if you ask me, or if, or I should be asking, like what is like, let's say black design or what is art that is coming from black developers and how is it different and kind of all these other intersections of blackness. And for me, and it, and also, also I should say kind of where are we seeing black players 
Where are we seeing other yeah. sort of black narrative? Like, what's so interesting to me, specific to our, you know, field, is the idea that new games journalism was kind of based on, like, this one narrative by a black player, and it's kind of propped up that way, and I find it kind of interesting how new games journalism became, like, a very white male... Uh, are you talking, are you talking, like, talking about the Bow Nigger piece, Manny? Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's just so interesting to me how now when it comes to personal pieces, like uh, minoritized people are the ones who are now starting to like really take these. And yet it was like kind of like the first kernel of personal narrative, if you will, in games writing. And I'm kind of curious if we can flesh that out. You know, it's funny. When I write about race, it's always through the, through the lens of like my own personal lived experience. Part of that is not wanting to be a stand-in for a whole group of people. I'd rather I'd rather put the call out as I've experienced it and, and, and let the response come back. Uh, that's where I feel most useful. The the point that you're making does ring true because there there is this idea that if the official channels of building this as a career are not available to you, then all you've got is a idiosyncratic, you know, highly personal take based on your experience, that can hopefully speak to larger issues. I mean, my career, I know from where I sit, you know, having a staff gig at Kotaku, it may seem very cushy, but my career has been nothing but odd coincidences, lucky breaks, and, you know, hopefully some talent there. But, you know, (laughs) I I got into writing about video games because I was a fact checker at Teen People magazine, and I was, you know, the house nerd as I used to say, and <laughs> when we were, it was more of a gender-neutral magazine when we launched, I was like, look, video games are youth culture, I want to help build out the coverage for this, and I did that in my off hours when I was, you know, fact-checking articles that other people wrote, and that's how I got in. That's where my journey started, but there was no mentorship, there was no guidance, there was no roadmap. Sadly, I, I still feel like uh, I've been doing this, what, 12, 15 years, something like that, there's still not much of one. Um, it feels like a place where you, you don't know where the key is. It's not under the mat. It's not under the rock. It's somewhere where you don't, you've never been told. And that's why I think this new games journalism, you know, the more personal critique-oriented kind of writing makes sense for a lot of people who feel like others, who feel like minoritized, like you've said, Maddie. Like, it, it just seems like, okay, if I'm going to find any kind of way to do this, is going to be that way. So I mean, I I, I always so so I mean I'll, I'll say that I'll say that I never really I mean what we characterize as personal writing particularly I, I normally think is normally just writing that is that uh, explicitly um, refers to the self to the writer. Um, I think all writing is is personal in a sense because it employs our perspective, right? But sure. you know, this is understanding that there are also writings where like I'm talking about my own experience in a very explicit way. When it comes to my own stuff, I mean I I never really wrote that what we consider as personal writing actually that often I like to do. I like to do very hard, somewhat scholarly kind of arts criticism with really weird, interesting games that are very complex in certain ways. That's usually what I tend to do. So, so with that, I've always been weird about this understanding of black design, um, mostly because I feel like the criticism I've done is 
okay, or at least it's, you know, it's pretty good, beyond the fact that I am a black person who's writing it, that this is something that is useful because it is useful. <laughs> you know, it, it's useful because in a sense it's probably entertaining or maybe, you know, it gives something to someone. I, I, I like the idea of how does, the, how does the experience of someone being a black person out in, you know, the post-colonialist environments and itself shape uh, the things that we create. Um, at the same time, um, I, I've always been kind of nervous about, about the things I do being chained to the fact that I am a black person who's writing it. I, to be honest, like, I, I, I am in itself a black critic. At the same time, um, I'm also a critic. At the same time, I'm someone who writes games criticism, right? The, the, it, like the fact that it always ties back to that. I'm a black games critic. I feel is a little weird sometimes. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if that's always, I don't know if that's always something to to put out when I do the things I do. Normally, because it, even just the, the the nature of the writing I do, I don't really think it's it's apparent, like initially apparent, or even in any way that this is written by a black person. Usually, you know. Uh... Maddie, you, you talk about this idea of, of black design. Can there be such a thing? What it would look like? I've actually been thinking about that a lot because, you know, let's start like brass tacks. You think about black music, right, as we know it now and as we've known it historically. You know, it's something that, that happened that happens through a lens of historical circumstances, right? Like hip-hop starts because of schools not being funded in the inner city, right? Mm-hmm. Instruments all of a sudden not being available, like consumer electronics being widely accessible and a certain amount of creativity forming up around that. You know, the same thing with the blues. It's a response to other musical forms that were already extant. And for me, one of the things I love the most about black cultural production throughout the the, the centuries is the idea of syncretism, right? Like, again, I'm Haitian, so voodoo as a real religion, as just lived for the people who live there, is something that's very familiar to me. You take some Roman Catholicism, you take some religious practices from the west coast of Africa, right, and you fuse these two things together in something entirely new and different, which has ideas from both root sources in it, something that, that new, different thing emerges. And it would be interesting to see what a game what game creativity based on these principles would be like, you know? You think about sampling, too, taking something that was already extant and retweaking it in a new context. That's something that I feel like video game creation would, would lend itself to uh, very easily, you know? Like, here's something that's been done before. Hell, we see it all the time, you know? Here's, here's, a, here's an RPG, but instead of happening in a fantasy setting, it's happening in a, a modern-day city, and you've got to, you know, figure out who you can trust, who you can talk to. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that we see in our lives every day. We we hear, read about it in the news every day. Can can you make a game out of that? Almost certainly. Can you make a game about about that those things that reflects the black experience? I, yeah, I think you can. You know, I mean, I don't want to shift on too big of a downer note here, but I, I I've been really depressed about the Michael Dunn verdict and and the killing of uh, Jordan Davis. Not just because of it as an isolated incident. It's not another link in a long chain of these similar kind of things happening, right? And what has been the key kind of mechanic in, in these events has been trust, right? The lack of trust. Uh, how, what do you believe about the messages that you're told about people who look differently than you, you know? And once you understand that, there's a whole other set of dominoes that falls as a result of that. And, you know, could you make a game about trust? Who do you talk to? who do you not talk to, why you talk to them or not, and what, how, what your response is to them, you, you almost certainly could. 
how it gets made is another thing. And that's something, you know, we talked about the larger structures that limit mobility with regard to access and distribution and stuff like that. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing that would be like a black video game design to me. Yeah, so to make a an analog, because I definitely feel like what both of you are saying, so, you know, last year or so, there has been kind of like this billing of a queer game design scene. Right. And, you know, which is interesting since all people who are cited to be in this queer game design scene says, we don't think there's a queer game design scene. But these people who are cited are also, you know, the identity is put forward and tokenized, much like how I, what I feel Zelani fears is the idea of, like, let us round up black designers and try to essentialize their creativity. Yeah. Which is interesting for me because I think about, well, I don't think it's a coincidence that, let's say, on the design level, that queer women in particular, you know, very, you know, similar in in one way, made very similar games. And even just down to the design level, when people were looking at kind of like these forefront games of lack of choice and also a circular elliptical design and just kind of things that kind of emerged out of there that maybe someone could take on and say, you know, these things, you know, the la- you know restraint or lack of choice isn't necessarily something that is endemic to queerness you know like not all queer people have to feel that way but it's interesting that this is the kind of feeling that is being overall transmitted from these sort of developers when we group them together in this movement and so when I kind of hear in your kind of you know thinking Evan is this idea of like will there will there be an interesting tie like of trust of of um, not necessarily appearances, but like the hyper awareness of appearance, you know, to other people, you know, will that start to become something and will that be in in an interesting way, black design when it's, you know, made into outside of just representational and, and narrative, which I find interesting. And I'm very curious to see since there does seem to be a kind of, you know, now an active digging up, more active digging up of people who do with, you know, DIY tools and minoritized designers who are now speaking and such. And I'm kind of curious about, and in a way, Lonnie, I, I feel like when you mentioned that you like to look at weird games, I'm also kind of curious as, as to who are the other people who are also looking at weird games. And is it ironic that a lot of minoritized people are looking at weird games as opposed to the other way around. So so I want to note a a few, I want to note there's a lot of stuff. I want to note a few things. One of them is is the ways in which we we understand as things that are black in terms of the music, in terms of different forms of art, are constantly in flux, right? When we normally think of the image of the fan who's into rock music now, we usually think of, you know, the sort of white bearded um, 20-something, but in a sense, a lot of of early rock music was actually um, from black people. Um, So I think with techno, with electronic music, right, we think of people like Robert Hood, who, who really started the sort of very 
early Detroit techno scene in the 80s and 90s, right? Um, I also want to note, uh, I also want to note when we talk about the queer games community, right? And you say a queer games community instead of the queer game community, which is something some articles kind of missed the point on, right? Uh, I thought that was kind of funny. When it comes to weird games, because, you know, I, I've, I've been running a magazine called The Arcade Review for a few months now, about six months now, with Alex Pichel, and, you know, this is, and the magazine is about experimental games, about weird games, different games that are, that people don't really talk about, that are somewhat obscure, that really excited us, us as critics and, you know, critics, scholar meshes. And in a sense, what I realize when thinking about, you know, the kind of way that I go about my games criticism is that a lot of stuff I take is from women. This is something I find interesting, is that, is that I feel like there's lots of engagement in weird games from women, and there's lots of development of which the ways we talk about weird games, which usually necessitate different kinds of tools than we usually use for big mainstream games, have been developed like women and have been pushed by women, um, women like Lana Polanski, uh, women like Kara Ellison, who, who wrote a fantastic review of Slave of God once, Stephen DeVall's Slave of God, um, the way that she talked about it, which was really interesting, Polly Koberger, uh, you know, AVB. Um, she she writes, actually writes a lot about you know really weird um, visual novel games and such. Um, at the same time, when I do interviews for the Arcade Review, again, I'm talking to a lot of women. Right? I had I did a conversation with Amy Tentata, who made Ten Seconds in Hell, which is phenomenal. No one you know no one plays that game, but I mean she has a lot of interesting things to say there. So I do think there's something really cool about weird games in the sense that I, I see different kinds of engagement and I see that the ways in which you engage with those games being pushed forward by different kinds of people. When we talk about similarity, about what makes the black experience. This is my last point before I stop. But one thing I found, what I always feel like sort of connected personally when it comes to the black experience of, of what makes something, what's, what makes something a sort of black work is that I always feel like what connected a lot of it was this sort of understanding of the social structures that are around me, right? One scene I always thought about that I realized would be a really good scene. Imagine if a, if a black woman walks into a store once, a, you know, a small corner store, and she goes and she, she picks up a, bu- a bag of milk. And she walks to the, to the to the storefront, and she puts it on the table, and the guy gives her a look, like a weird look, like, what are you doing here? She goes, I don't know, you know this, it's just this weird sort of very subtle moment, mm-hmm. but but I think it communicates a lot. It's this sort of, what, what I think Black Experience always meant to me was this sort of weird, very small, very subtle understanding of the structures that are around you, and the way that in which you shift your behavior towards those things. Yeah. You're a little nervous when I walk into corner stores. I'm a little weird mm-hmm. when I'm cautiously with someone who seems to give me a look. Why is he giving me a look? Is he just walking around? Is it something about the way I look? Is it, you know, do I look kind of weird today? You know, like, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. That, that sort of self-awareness that gets felt that that could be possibly insecurity, right? I think in itself, I think is important. That's what I actually really, that's what I'm actually really interested in when it comes to the black experience. Um, and that's why I think it's something that actually I'd like to see explore this understanding of, of, of um, being within this sort of different kinds of space, being someone who is um, denied resources, not only to sort of, you know, structural resources, but also social resources, right? Um, you know, um, I think uh, th- there have been writers, scholars who've written a lot about how the way in which black men um, are often very alone, um, they're often very sort of shift to the thing when they're walking around in cities so that people avoid them on the street, people give them looks and mm-hmm. such, and it makes them feel very isolated, right? Those kinds of conversations, very under subtle self-awareness understandings, I think, can produce a lot. Um, it's really nice to see that, right? It's really nice for someone to, to look at those things and, and feel like, hey, there's someone who understands my experience. That's what I'm interested in personally when it comes to this understanding of like a black, like a, a black work is in itself is, is a demonstration of the understandings of the weird, very flux, very odd, effective kind of things that go on when I'm going about my daily life. Yeah. So I, in that sense, I think the main tension is kind of like being ourselves as black and also at the same time resisting 
the constant whitewashing that is happening in design and in criticism, both overtly and uh, subtly. I was thinking about, uh, so Indicade East this past weekend, Oria Harvey of Tale of Tales gave a keynote. And in her keynote, she was like, is this really the first games keynote by a black woman? I saw her quoted on Twitter. Yeah. And that, like, is alarming. Well, at first, like, it was alarming because, one, I'd never thought about it. And, two, like, I personally gave a keynote last year but in Australia. And it's really weird. And, like, actually, it upset me in a weird way. Cause, like, and now I'm starting to research. Like, I've been asking people and I've been, like, searching through conferences for <laughs> black women because I'm, like, I cannot possibly be the first black woman to give a keynote at a games conference. That's absurd. Um, but it is that idea of, like, who is, when is it that people like myself and um, Ori are allowed to come up? And it's an interesting way of how I feel like that's an analog for all of blackness and all of other sorts of minoritized identities. But like in particular, I think that if you're not going to go into, I, I feel like, I don't know, I, all of all the people in games I know that are black and have that, you know, you know, in some way apparent and in public, you know, are not harping on slavery and they're not harping on urban dynamics in their work. It might come out subtly in other ways, but like, it's not a big thing. And so I almost feel like because we have these people just naturally resisting whitewashing, we're only now starting to hear their ideas and their work and everything. And I was just like, I don't know if you all had time to like meditate on the idea that it's not like, you know, a, a black person or a black woman only now are being highlighted in games culture and where else do you see us breaking through? Yeah, you know, it's funny because par- part of that is the choice you have to make, you know, when you're becoming an adult, a black adult in a, in a, in a world filled with, with white hegemony. You have to decide, okay, where am I going to spend my energy trying to break into? You know, am I going to go into finance? <laughs> um, <laughs> am I going to go into... And it's funny that we all laugh because I think we're all laughing at the same reason. The, the, the reason is that it doesn't seem like a hospitable, welcoming place. It could be a Wall Street banker. Right. We're not idiots. Of course there are black Wall Street bankers, you know? But, like, do you hear about them? Do you see them? No, you don't. Not to the extent that you do their non-black peers, right? And the same thing, you know, you could argue for video games. It doesn't seem like there's a way in. It doesn't, it, it doesn't seem like there's enough people uh, to provide mentor relationships or even just the, the simplest forms of visibility, you know? Like, when you think about all the game creators that you could name off the top of your head, it's not a lot of black names. You know, and if you're somebody who's like, hey, I want to make games, but I don't see anybody else like me there. How do we do that? And then as a result, delaying effect that you're talking about, Maddie, happens. And, and that's like, OK, the people who are there get missed by virtue of their uh, of the same kind of, I guess, self-selection that happens in, in, in other realms of, of video game industry. And when you find, when finally somebody gets around to inviting Oreo or, to, or, or or Mandy Bryce to a conference to talk, it's like, oh wait, yeah, how do we miss this? 
<laughs> well, I mean, I, I've, I've said this before. I said this a little earlier. I, I, do, I do think a lot of the weirdness when it comes to um, the way people are, are fi- able to find access within the game industry or any sort of analysis of the games industry necessitates understanding the technology industry. Um, how do people technically go in the tech industry, right? Well, you know, some yeah. people tend to have computer science degrees. How do you get computer science degrees? Well, you need to get into college, and that, and then you go into the Black Achievement Gap with the United States, right? So it, it, it gets a little bigger into, into large in, into these large problematic things that you know. I do think that Tolkien's on games can do a little bit of change in, right? When we think about the conferences that we go to, when it comes to Oreo being able to get where she is right now, right? How, did, how does that happen? Well, you know, um, how do people meet each other within the social gatherings? Where do people go to meet social gatherings? Are they going in places where there are lots of black people? Are they going in places where black people are able to get to, right? Because in the United States, you know, it's very, very geopolitically segregated, right? If I'm holding, you know, the big conference where if I want to be someone who can do a keynote, I need to go there and be able to network and talk to people. And it's in the, right. the what I assume is like the nice part of San Francisco, you know, of course, yeah. it's not really going to happen much, right? Um, or you know, the nice part of Chicago or the nice part of New York, right? And and in that sense, I, I do think do think that's that's a lot of the weirdnesses, right? Like it seems kind of funny. It's like how does this kind of stuff happen? I, and I think uh, again, moving towards the, the natures of these large capitalist processes that structure the ways in which people are able to access resources, uh, social resources as well as uh, material resources in themselves, I think is important in understanding these things. That usually leads to um, what work is done outside of games. For example, uh, what Maddie Bryce does on model view culture, right? Which which uh, which did a really really good uh, a piece once about the nature of these uh, these sort of uh, these tech workshops for black kids. Or, or just there's these tech workshops that did stuff in, in, in sort of predominantly black areas, and they had a lot of black kids, you know, learning computer science, learning how to, you know, maybe I should, uh, you know, getting access to college and stuff. There weren't a lot of, you know, institutions like that. I think it sort of requires and so thinking about how the ways in which people are able to access the processes of industry of because this is all career right like you know some of yeah. us make money more money than others but we we still this is something which is a career and that means that understanding how people get into these sort of institutional structures what are what are the ways of access can there be other ways of access that can be opened you know it, it requires a certain kinds of uh, self reflection something James Butler has talked about that this requires some kind of self-reflection of, of the things that we do, or the, the sort of patterns that, that we sort of go about our daily life, right? Um, and the industry patterns that we sort of take part in um, and thinking about how these things might deny access to certain people and give access to others and, and, and think about ways in which that can be changed, that can be shifted a little bit. So it, it, it's a lot of, I think it, it understands these sort of stuff like that. Yeah, so in a kind of like, summation of what we've been talking about. I'm now kind of curious, like, you know, all three of us are are here and we're talking and we've kind of give our, like, kind of structure why it is almost is us three here talking about this now. So now I'm thinking for us as writers, what is it that not maybe what we could or should be doing, because I'm, I'm pretty sure we all have really great ideas about what those are for ourselves, but what is now, let's say, our situation, our role, um, our relationship to things? I personally kind of very, I don't know, stridently cut off my ties to games journalism earlier this year. And I don't find myself able to get into that. And I kind of worried about just in, in myself of my activism and such of kind of what, you know, as Lonnie says, like, we need people to uh, to show how to exist in games and games criticism. Um, And when no one's being like funded, you know, money is not going towards black people or lots of minoritized people in uh, games writing and games development. 
So what exactly is our status and where do you see this going? I'll use Alana. You start. Okay. Well, 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 well I mean, um, I'll also say something that I used to do writing that was a little more towards industry stuff. I used to do some, you know, writing for Paste. Um, and there was a time where I wanted to be part of the big game drill industry, but then I got then, but then I realized that a lot of those uh, spheres don't really support what I wanted to do. Um, when it comes to my situation, I'm working on this magazine. Um, this is something me and Alex do, and it allows us to sort of deprioritize the sort of needs of industry and commercialism and move on to other things. Where you just want to sit there and talk about interesting games, right? That's what sort of moves into mostly. I, I do a lot of, we both do work it, but I do a lot of promotion work and I do a lot of hiring work. I'm the one who commissions the covers. I'm the one who sends out the promotion emails and stuff like that and, and does the interviews sometimes. I've done a few interviews this issue. And, and one of the things, because the interviews run by dudes, right? Um, it's run by Alex and I, and we're both dudes. And in that sense, that makes me think, okay, well, well, what can I do? Well, maybe when I do another cover, I should try, you know, commissioning more women. Maybe I should look to more women artists who can, who can you know, be able to do a cover. When it comes to interviews, this is a big thing. This is this is kind of a big deal for me, right? I'd, I'd like to interview more women within weird experimental indie spaces because there are tons of women just doing fantastic stuff and no one talks to them, right? I, I think when it comes to doing things, I think when it comes to status, like, I think it comes to the, the point. I mean, we're writers, right? So it comes to the point of amplification. Who am I talking about? What games am I talking about? What's the way in which I talk about these? games, you know, and it becomes of who you put attention to towards, you know, um, I'd like to, I did interview Amy Tutata and she was fantastic and I'd love to do more interviews with women. Um, when it comes to the larger press, we tend to talk to the same people all the time. And those people are usually um, white males. And when it comes to indie scene, this is notorious. Everyone talks to John Blow, right? Everyone wants to know what John Blow thinks about everything. Um, you know, mm-hmm. no one talks to Sophie Holden. Um, no one talks to Liz Ryerson, except, you know, a little bit. Um, and sometimes Christine Love was discussed, but usually when Christine Love is just talked about, she's sort of, I feel like she's sort of put into like the sort of diversity box a little bit. You know, so so it becomes so it becomes this nature as writers of what we put attention to, what we put the spotlight into, and when it comes to sort of a, a business management thing, I mean, we're sort of our own small solo business, so I guess I am the guy who does this kind of stuff. But when it comes to what I do, it becomes okay, who am I hiring? Who am I allowing money to go to? Right? Who am I do interviewing? Who am I choosing for these kinds of things? So and, and and these are good things because these are constant decisions that I think we can all sort of make in a sense, right? These are are, are practical and doable shifts. And the way in which, in way in which, you know, we sort of do our writing, these, these don't take huge leaps of self-reflection. This takes, okay, you know what? L- let's say I want to, I can interview, you know, Jonathan Blower. I could interview, you know, I can interview Aurea. Okay, well, I think I'm gonna go with Aurea this time. You know, like those kind of things, I think are really doable, and I think they can actually make a good change there. I think it makes a real difference. Is it my turn? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's weird because you, you, you guys, as, as a point of contrast, are able to steer your own careers and your own output in a way that is different than me, which is to say I don't have a lot of personal freedom um, working at Kotaku. Of course I do. But I think by nature of writing for an outlet that some would say is more mainstream, I've got a different set of variables that I have to contend with. That said, what I view as what I'm able to impact with regard to conversations is just making sure there's visibility, you know, like constant visibility uh, uh, about what it means to put a black person in a video game, what it means for for there not to be enough black people in a video game or making them. These are topics that I, I've talked about on Kotaku and, and places before Kotaku that help create a climate where the, the conversations can at least be had. Because, again, it sounds really simple and basic and easy to take for granted, but it could just as easily be the opposite, where there's a climate where these conversations aren't being had because 
nobody thinks that it's okay to talk about them. As like 101 as that idea is, it's still very much the norm, I think, when you're talking about video games and, and where they come from and who they makes them and who makes them and who plays them. I feel like every time I write about race and representation and blackness and, 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 and otherness about video games, that's part of a larger action plan that's informed my entire career. What, what I have been hearing a lot, I've been a Kotaku for two in almost a half years. I've been hearing a lot more is, is that, you know, people are glad to know about somebody who's willing to discuss these, these issues. And that's not something, you know, I, I take for granted or minimize, you know, it's, like I said, it can be hard knowing that the minute you're going to touch that third rail, there's a, there's a chance you're going to get electrocuted, right? But when people tell me that I appreciate your work or it makes me want to do what you do or it, it opens up a whole area of thinking and conversation for them that they didn't necessarily have before, that I feel like that's me actually doing something. And it can be hard to feel like you're doing something, you know? It, it, it can be very, very hard. Again, I, I've been playing a game for review the, the last week or so, and, and again, the, the Michael Dunver came down, and I'm like, well, what, what the fuck am I doing, honestly? What, like, what, what is this? You know, like, right. I don't know if helplessness is the right word, but it's, I've definitely been depressed. I've definitely been right. down. Uh, another part of the swirl of my thoughts has been thinking about my daughter. I've got a young daughter who's three years old. She doesn't know about any of this stuff. I don't know when she's going to learn it. I may not have any impact on how she learns it. Or the, at best, I'll be able to do some damage control when, when one day she realizes that her hair is different or that mommy's Korean and daddy's black. And that means people are going to look at her a certain way and she's going to be exoticized or whatever. She may, she may not be in the kind of danger that a young black male uh, like Jordan Davis, like Javon Martin was. She may not be in that kind of danger, but she will face other kind of dangers. You know, mm-hmm. they may be psychological instead of physical and what do i do about that you know so i've had a lot of angst about that yeah to bring that to bring that to to bring that back to my career what i've been getting back is that hey you know that angst as it carries over towards representation in video games representation for people who play uh, video games who write about them here's one area where people like us don't necessarily have to feel alone or like their concerns are weird or fringe, or, or beyond the pale, no pun intended, they feel like, hey, there's somebody here who can touch on some of this stuff and tell other people what it feels like. I'm sorry if that was a long ramble, but I, I hope it connected. <laughs> no, I, I actually understand. I, I can understand that that, that could be a, a little nerve-wracking a bit. I, uh, so sometimes I, you know what, um, sometimes I include it, because I don't actually talk about race in my writing that often. So sometimes I sit there and like, should I, you know, put this in writing a little more often? You know, that's just, just usually, to be honest, that's just not when it comes to critical writing that, that I like to really focus on. At the same time, I sit there and think, like, just the fact that I'm here doing this and just the fact that I'm around is in itself a radical act. I'm not supposed to be doing something like this. The young black male is not supposed to be able to be editing a magazine, right? Maybe he's supposed to be in jail. Uh, maybe it's supposed to be. I mean, um, at least as, job, as, like... as per the scripts that get constantly promulgated in the media, right? Like as per the way that our lives are are easily kind of troped in mainstream narratives. You know, none of us is supposed to be doing this. You know, uh, if we can't dance, if you can't if you can't play a sport, if you can't hustle. In, in a very narrow definition of that, then you're some kind of an anomaly. And it's, it's not good to feel like an anomaly. 
but I, I feel like sometimes that, that just the fact that I'm here doing this, literally here right now and talking about this, is in itself an achievement. Um, and in itself is a radical act because this isn't what the, the structures around me want. So I, I, feel, I feel like that in itself is an important achievement for all of us. I think that's actually worth considering and, and worth being glad about, about the fact that we're here and, and able to do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't until, you know, I really thought about the idea of Oria being first American black or, or American uh, black woman in America to give a, a keynote for games. It, it didn't strike me that maybe I should feel like I have achieved something in just plain existence because, you know, that's not really something that sometimes that feels like a combat, right like sometimes right, that feels yeah. like like okay all i have to do is show up really and then right, and, yeah. and, and that makes every other achievement of yours feel like a little bit dubious you know right yeah and it's just it's just like it does make me wonder because i mean like i do know that i'm tokenized i do know already that people are going to be like hi i want you to do this and you're only going to be allowed to exist like i do have ideas outside of activism like i started my journey in games you know not really focusing too much on activism and it is that kind of interesting like tension between how much is it just existing and isn't is that a strain and no so i have the same concerns as you do evan in that idea of, it's like you you can't not talk about it but you right. are also capable of talking about other things yeah, and then that just seems to be kind of, like, the weird thing to kind of, like, mention to people. Like, hey, we can talk about other things and still be this and also, you know, also talk about that without being a token. It doesn't have to be a tokenized conversation, which is what, you know, when you start to explain how you kind of do, you write about blackness at Kotaku year-round. You don't do it at just February. And so when you just said that, I was kind of like, you know, maybe that is just the ideal situation in in a sense of like, maybe in a sense, we really don't need this Black History Month in games journalism. You know, I mean, I, I'm kind of scared thinking what that would look yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, so it's Wait, they, they just said we don't have to do it, guys. It's, it's over. <laughs> right. So it's probably better off that we uh, don't have it. But it is interesting to see that and you know i in a way like you know i I guess at first i kind of did come into this feeling somber but now i feel so much more happier because i feel like 2014 will be a time for a lot of social movement especially like just now like this past couple of days i feel like we're going to be hearing talks about labor and socioeconomic justice in games because that is super super important and is becoming more and more dire and solving if we could, you know, socioeconomic injustice in games, at least, would open up to, let's say, blackness being more apparent because that is such a, a large hurdle for minoritized people getting into games. I guess I am quite interested. Is there anything else, like, let's say, like, maybe we can end off on this. Like, is there anything you all are kind of, in general, looking forward to in 2014 that kind of relates to becoming more visible? I'm very interested in Sean Allen's game. I, I think we all know about it at Treachery and Beatdown City. You know, if, if Sean talks about this stuff a lot. He's a game maker whose game is imminent. Well, maybe not Im- imminent, but it it's, should be, mm-hmm. I think, out in this calendar year. Um, so I'm interested to see how he tackles that stuff. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have to do it with a heavy hand, but uh, knowing him as a creator who is who thinks about these things I'm interested to see how they play out in his in his creativity. 
on that point is like I just want I want to see more indie creators, uh, more diasporan indie creators coming to the fore. I want to see just more faces, and and hopefully as as the faces pop up, uh, more of visions through the lens of blackness, you know, uh, 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 video games, you know, just, and it, it, we're talking about all this stuff, and it doesn't have, always have to be deep, you know, but it, sometimes it can just be, like, visual tropes, musical tropes that ping off of the stuff that feels familiar and feels welcoming to us. That's something I felt when I was playing the, the Assassin's Creed DLC, you know, all of a sudden, this background music is in Crayol, I'm like, wow, this reminds me of going to church with my mom. That's certainly unexpected. Things like that, go a long, long way to making you feel like your existence matters. I mean, you already know Sean Allen, so I can't know Sean Allen, but I'd also like to note uh, TJ Thomas, who has, been, who has for a long time just put out game after game after game and just released uh, Trailancer, which isn't in itself a discussion of any kind of racial politics, but at the same time, I'm also excited just as the fact that a lot of the stuff that he's pushing right now, um, he's, he's starting to push community initiatives, which I think is really interesting, just indie game community initiatives, and he did a really good talk at Indicate East last week, I think, which actually makes you really happy about that. That's a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah, I think for me, overall, it is, as Evan says, like kind of like we're getting less industry creators and more solo or yeah mostly like solo creators even I, I find it is it tends to be solo or just at least small team of people who when when we get more welcoming to those like that's where people seem like that's how I broke in like I always feel like I kind of broke into the game's community you know overall like I snuck in on a media pass and I snuck in as a as a creator through DIY uh, tools. Um, and I think now we're going to be seeing more people doing that. And this path in Indicate East was a very interesting and promising sign for me because it was just kind of like a whole bunch of interesting topics right there. And it just seemed so well-received. And there's just been more conferences with more minoritized speakers who are already mentorized by games, the games industry, you know, now speaking and talking and being visible and not having to talk about diversity, which is the, you know, the most wonderful thing is having people who, uh, you know, are black and not have to talk about their blackness 24-7 at conferences. And so that's pretty <laughs> great. And I'm, and I mean, like, I, and let, let me use this as a shout out. No one, please, I don't want to talk about gender anymore at a conference. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think that is, and especially because of how conferences do work as community building and kind of here is our community. And at a past couple of conferences, my community has been getting less and less white, you know, <laughs> or, or at least more and more non-white. And I'm kind of excited about the shifting perspective of games media to look at these smaller places because they're just more interesting. Like, you know, yeah. the reporting of AAA industry is getting very monotonous. You know, they're doing, they're failing the same way. And it's just interesting to say, like, well, there's all these different ideas and people and weird stories. So it's almost kind of like, like, I, I've just been thinking, like, the media has an inherent, possibly selfish interest in supporting diversity because it just brings so much more interesting things to talk about. Yep. So I, I'm kind of hoping, my hope is to see the media take a stronger role in uh, social justice and diversity initiatives just to, because I feel like they, that is kind of the gateway 
if you will, because the media amplifies stories so much. And to have this interesting movement of shrinkage in the industry and in online publications, and then this growth of people, you know, on the ground floor is maybe as pains right now, but will be better in the future, maybe? Let's hope so, right? Um, Let's hope so, at least. When it when it comes to just like this understanding of of weirder games that are different and that attempt different things that are usually different from sort of bigger games, I'm interested also in in the sort of shifting within critical analysis of the way in which we talk about games that could shift ourselves to be able to do a lot of these games justice. Sometimes I feel like the way in which we talk about games now, the way we assess games, um, isn't complicated enough, doesn't really isn't able to to properly uh, go over games that do things a little different, that do things a little weirder. I'm interested in seeing that because I do think that weirder and more interesting. Type Titles that are the small tend to inspire different kinds of criticism that is a little more expensive, and that in itself is actually, to me at least, a little more exciting. Which is why you know I try to compilate a lot of that stuff. Um, I'm really excited to see where criticism can go in terms of assessing and bringing justice to weirder, really interesting stuff. I'm actually really cool about that. So, yeah. So, any closing thoughts, last kind of proclamations we want to make about Black History Month in games? Or the lack thereof, thank God. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I don't know. It doesn't just have to be February. Uh, um, <laughs> right. You know, don't be afraid to talk about this stuff. Don't be afraid to get stuff wrong. When I was doing online dating was years ago, one of the things I had in my description was, I love being black. And mm. that's stupid, corny, personal model, but it really is. Like What I feel like mm-hmm. I get access to is this rich, metaphorical well of ways to be that I, I really super freaking enjoy. And I think if you have to think about blackness in any terms, if, if it's not native to you, think about it that way. Think about it of, of a different way of being that, that came out of some really fucked up circumstances, but can be molded into anything you want it to be, you know? And it sounds, I don't know, maybe corny or basic, but that's really how I live my life. You know, it, it's, it's like my, my parents were immigrants, I grew up around people who didn't look like me, who didn't understand people who look like me, and yet here I am. It was not, it was easy, but that's a way to think about it, you know, and that's a story to be told, I think, over and over again, and not just in, in one set of 28 days. What was it called? What, to sort of bounce off heaven there, um, I think it's valuable to embrace alterity, alternative modes of consumption, alternative modes of life, alternative modes of seeing yourself. I, 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 think, I think that can be sort of freeing to be able to do that, but that's mostly it, but... <laughs> well, I think that's a good wrap there, everyone. Yeah, um, agreed. Thank you so yeah. much for you, coming along and talking. Yeah, yeah. thank you, too. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Yay, Chris. And yes, thank you. On uh, behalf of all of our listeners and our readers over at Critical Distance, thank all three of you once again for taking the time to chat with us today. And if it helps, Sunny. This will probably go up sometime in March, so we've already defeated <laughs> the purpose of Black History Month entirely. So, thank you again, and I am quite humbled to have been in your presence for this past hour and a half, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. 